Let's, let's turn now to Mark chapter 15. I'm going to pick up right after the account of the crucifixion. And so here we're reading about Joseph of Arimathea and the, the women who are on hand um, witnessing the burial of Jesus. So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to begin in verse 40 and read the first, through the first few verses of chapter 16. When evening had come since it was the day of preparation, uh, I'm sorry, back up a couple of verses, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Let me pray for us. Lord, we lift our eyes to you and we want to see Jesus. We want to see him clearly. We want to behold the glory of God in his face and draw nearer to him. So we ask that you would help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, I want to indulge your, your Christmas sentimentality here for just a second. I know we're not quite hitting Halloween, but all the retailers are doing it, so we'll do it here too. Uh, I want to reimagine Dickens. Uh, I want to reimagine the introduction, his first words as he uh, begins the story, a, a Christmas story, Christmas Carol. All right, so, so put your Dickens thinking on uh, for A Christmas Carol and, uh, and, and imagine it in this context, that, that Jesus was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The order for his execution was signed by the Sanhedrin and by Pilate. And the confirmation of his execution was attested by the centurion, by the women, and by Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus was as dead as a doornail. Now, mine, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a crucifixion nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. Mark wants us to know emphatically, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus is dead. He tells us again and again and again, I don't know if you heard it as we were reading through it, but let me review verse 44. 
Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. In verse 45, when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse, different Greek word from just the regular word for body. This is the word for the dead body. He granted the corpse to Joseph. And then Mark tells us about the tomb, the place where you put a dead body. Mentions the tomb five times in, in these verses. Tomb, 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 tomb. You know, like, okay, we get it. He's dead. And Mark won't let up. He won't get off this point. Why? Well, one commentator says it is further worth recalling that the Romans crucified hundreds of thousands of individuals during their centuries in power, not one of whom is recorded as surviving the cross. So Jesus is dead to begin with, right? There can be no doubt about that. What I want to do is look at the good women, and we're going to call them the good Arimathean, uh, Joseph, that is. And, and these are the witnesses uh, to the death of Jesus, okay? So look at verse 46, how Joseph brought a, a linen shroud. We're going to start with, with Joseph, and then we're going to talk about the women. This is one of those Mark sandwiches where he does the women, and then Joseph, and then the women. Uh, so we'll start with Joseph. He, he buys this linen shroud and he takes Jesus down, wraps him in the linen shroud and lay him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So who's Joseph? Well, we know he's a member of the Sanhedrin. So he's actually like, you might imagine him with a black hat on, but he's actually got a white hat on because uh, the Sanhedrin are the one who are demanding the death of Jesus, demanding his execution. Yet Joseph and a couple other members of the Sanhedrin, they were actually believers. They weren't in league with all the other 70 plus, you know, members of the Sanhedrin. He's holding out. Instead, he's actually demonstrating some incredible courage. He's believing that Jesus is who he says he is, the Messiah, the, the king of the kingdom of God. He's looking, he's been looking forward to the kingdom of God. Like, like you think of Simeon, you think of you know, these other figures that we run across in some of the Gospels who have been looking for this and hoping for this and see in Jesus, whether he's an infant or whether he's a dead Savior, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And he knew that Jesus was dead. And, you know, we're calling him the good Arimathean because we're comparing him to the good Samaritan. Because the good Samaritan, you know, he went out of his way to do the right thing for the bloody and beaten man in the ditch, right? That's what the Good Samaritan did. Well, the Good Arimathean is sort of doing the same thing. He's going out of his way, going through an awful lot of trouble, even you know, risking his own um, you know, safety and security to do the right thing for the beaten and bloody man on the cross. The Good Samaritan takes this bloody beaten man in the ditch, wipes the blood and the spit and the dirt off of his body and pours oil and wine onto the wounds and took him to an inn to recover. The good Arimathean wipes the blood and the spit and the dirt 
off of the body, buys a linen shroud, wraps the body in the shroud, and took him to a tomb to bury him. There's some similarities in how they treat the bodies, but one really important difference. The Good Samaritan is taking care of a live person. The Good Arimathean has no doubt whatsoever. Jesus is dead. He's showing his devotion to a dead man. So Joseph is not only attesting to the death of Jesus through this burial uh, process, the, the preparation of the body, he's also showing this uh, this, this remarkable devotion through his courage. To go and, and, and ask for the body of Jesus to, to take it down from the cross was remarkable because to leave the bodies on the cross was actually the, the device that the Romans used to, to underscore their authority. It was the terror, it was the fear that was you know, effective through crucifixion that that held everybody under their thumb and kept, you know, the culture in line and so on. And so to take the body down early was an offense. And so there was this risk, right? What if Pilate decided not to grant Joseph his request? What if Pilate wanted to make an example of Joseph, make an example of anybody who dared to dull the blade of Roman uh, enforcement? But he, thankfully, Pilate granted Joseph's request. So you've got Joseph attesting to the death of Jesus by burying him. Let's talk about not just the good Arimathean, but also these good women um, that we meet in verse 40. The women who were also uh, looking on from a distance initially. But then if you look at verse 47, that Mary... Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus was laid. And so Mark's giving us these two different um, ways of, of seeing this episode through the eyes of these women. Initially, uh, the, the, the imagery is that they're standing far away and they're, they're spectating. And they're watching the crucifixion from a distance. Uh, they're probably... In, being wise and, and not getting too close because uh, they don't want to get uh, they don't want to risk uh, something happening to them. But th this is just something that nobody wants to get close to. And they're sort of like, as I said, passively spectating. But when you get to verse forty-seven, they're seeing something very unusual in that, again. Joseph has been granted permission to take the body down from the cross because ordinarily the only way the bodies come down from a cross is for it to fall off days or weeks later. So this is different. Something unusual is, is happening here. And now they're looking more intently. They, they saw where G Joseph took the body and where Joseph laid the body of Jesus. Uh, and this is really to watch intently is, is the language that Mark is employing to describe this kind of looking. And so now they're very intent and they know exactly what the tomb is. So this is to get rid of any doubt whatsoever that somehow, you know, these women, you know women, 
going to the wrong tomb, right? I don't know any of the wrong body uh, or, or so on. Like, so this is just pointing out. No, these women knew exactly what they were doing. So look again at, in chapter 16 now, the first few verses, how the Sabbath is passed and Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And they're asking themselves, you know, who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb? Um, these, these women are important. They're incredibly important. They know absolutely that, that Jesus was dead because what are they doing? They're on their way to his tomb on what we now celebrate as Easter morning. They're not bringing breakfast to a beaten man. They're bringing spices to embalm a dead man. And so they get there and, you know, uh, all the gospel accounts record uh, the resurrection and the women going to the tomb. And uh, John's gospel has this interesting encounter between Mary Magdalene uh, and Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And she's so distraught, she thinks that Jesus is the gardener. She doesn't recognize him. Why? Because resurrection isn't on her grid. She knows Jesus is dead. She believes he's still dead, and here's Jesus in front of him. And, and so that's significant. She's overwhelmed. She's shocked. She's in awe. She's not saying, oh, <laughs> Jesus, I'm so glad it's you. I'm so relieved. Just like you said, you're, you're, you weren't really dead. I knew it. And those women, I told them not to be upset, but they, you know, they wouldn't listen, but so glad to see you again. That's just not her demeanor at all. She's convinced he's dead. All the women know that he's dead, and the resurrection completely catches them off guard. And why else are these women important? Not only because they're another uh, testimony to the, the actual death of Jesus, but Mark keeps repeating their names. Did you notice that? Uh, we, get, we get the full name of, of Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, we get the names of Mary Magdalene. We get the name of Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. That's actually Jesus' mother too. James and Joseph are Jesus' full, um, well, half-brothers, I guess. And then you've got Salome, the mother of, um, uh, of James and John, the sons of thunder. So these women are, are, show up throughout the Gospels, but they keep, we keep hearing their name. Why? Uh, because in a court, you need to know who's testifying. These are the, the living witnesses in Mark's gospel, in, in Mark's day and age, and the recipients of his gospel could go and they could speak with any of these witnesses who are, were still alive at that time, and they would know exactly who to go to. And it's really pretty remarkable, too, because in that culture, the testimony of women was not even admissible in a Jewish court. So why in the world would, would Mark and the other gospel writers place the weight of the good news on the shoulders of women witnesses? I mean, Joseph too, but the majority of the witnesses are women. Well, it's part of the elevation and esteem, obviously, that God has, in a, especially in a culture that didn't, didn't trust women, and, and even in our culture today, there's still uh, occasions of this, right? But this actually teaches us that we can trust Mark 
He's not making this up. He's telling us exactly what happened. Um, you know, no one would invent this story and then, you know, ask the world to believe it based on women witnesses. Not in that culture, not in that age. I mean, there, I'm not saying that Mark actually wrestled with this, but you can imagine that it could have been a temptation for somebody writing an account like this to to say, well, you know, maybe we'll just omit that part about the women witnesses. Oh, no, I know what we'll do. We'll just switch them out for the men, for the guys. The disciples, you know, actually weren't there, but we'll just say that they were. Mark doesn't do that. He doesn't look for the easiest way to convince the general public and, and pander to, you know, cultural sensitivity. He tells it exactly like it is. That's why we, we can believe that this is credible. This is believable. So we've got a couple of things to think about there, about the good women, the good Arimathean, all who are God's witnesses that Jesus is dead. Mark wants us to know this, and I'm going to just indulge uh, um, Dickens one more time, you will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Jesus was as dead as a doornail. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the good news that Mark is sharing. So let's throw out a few questions. Why is Mark spending so much time telling us again and again how dead Jesus was? Because the death of Jesus is our life. We who are united to Christ, who have union with him in his death, also get to have union with him in his life. And we'll talk about that in the weeks to come as we get to the end of Mark. But um, let me just mention that in, uh, gosh, 350 plus years ago, 1684, 1684, very respected pastor named John Owen published a four-part theological exposition of the gospel called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. This is this enormous, heavy, heady theological uh, digging into what happened on the cross, uh, and it was reprinted in the 1950s, at which point uh, the publishers invited J.I. Packer to write uh, an introduction, a preface to Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And probably none of us in this room are going to get through the four volumes of Owen. But I think it would be wonderful for you to look up J.I. Packer's introductory essay to The Death of Death and the Death of Christ because it's a fantastic summary. It's the cliff notes, right? So here's what, here's what Packer says about Owen's, essay, uh, Owen's book. It's safe to say that no comparable exposition of the work of redemption as planned and executed by the triune Jehovah has ever been done since Owen published his. None has been needed. And I think that's still the case. 350 years later. Um, J.I. Packer, if you haven't heard of him before, he's now been gone to be with the Lord and just a tremendous scholar, tremendous saint uh, who, who wrote so many books that have been helpful to the church. Uh, one I have on the shelf above my desk, a really 
I like small books, you know, short chapters. It's called Concise Theology. Uh, you, can, you can get it, and it's a great little summary of systematic theology. So in that book, here's what uh, Packer basically, how he sums up what happened on the cross. What happened when Jesus died? And Packer says that the death of Christ actually put away the sins of all God's elect and ensured that they would be brought to faith through regeneration and kept in faith for glory. And that is what it was intended to achieve. So it was designed to save sinners, and it accomplished it. So that's Packer's summary of what happened through the death of Jesus. So in short, here's what we can say. You can sum up John Owen's four volumes. You can sum up Packer's, you know, four pages with pretty much three words. In the death of Christ, God saves sinners. Yeah, I knew that, right? Christ saved us. That's nothing new. In the death of Christ, Christ saved us. We all nod and agree, right? But let me say it again. Christ saved sinners. He didn't just make it possible for sinners to be saved. The death of Christ was not We'll, we'll, we'll have to find out if anybody believes. We'll have to find out if anybody kind of makes good on this. He made it possible, hypothetically speaking. Yeah, you could be saved if you believe in Christ, but we'll see. No, it's not possible. It's not potential. It's actual. He really saved sinners through his death, through his resurrection. So look, if somebody, um, God forbid, you're in a busy intersection, you're on the crosswalk, and you're, I don't know, you've got your earbuds in or you're listening to something and just oblivious to the Mack truck coming full speed through that intersection and you have no idea it's coming and somebody else sees the truck coming, sees you not paying attention, rushes into the intersection, pushes you out of the way and saves you. And in the process, they perish. then you're starting to understand a little bit of what Jesus did for us. John Owen, he underwent death that we might be delivered from death. This is how the gospel works. So sometimes, you know, in Christian circles, I don't know if you're new to the church or, or new to the Bible or you know, new to this thing, uh, if you talk to Christians after a while, you start hearing things like, Oh, well, you know, I became a Christian when I was 14. I was saved at the youth rally, you know, the youth retreat, um, maybe middle school or high school, or they're at a young life camp or something like that. Yeah, I got saved there. Or, you know, somebody will say something like, yeah, I got saved at, uh, at a Billy Graham crusade, you know, way back when. And, uh, and that's, when, that's how they talk about their salvation. I was saved at that moment or, or whatever. But 
what they're really saying is that at that event or when they heard that gospel message, that's when it clicked. That's when they connected the dots and realized I was saved through what Jesus did for me. It makes sense now. Jesus pushed me out of the way of the Mack truck of cosmic justice coming my way because the wages of my sin is death. And he pushed me out of the way of that just judgment, and he took it on himself instead. He was mowed over in my place as he suffered cosmic justice on the cross. And so when we talk about our salvation, when we talk about believing in Jesus, we go, yeah, I became a Christian. I was saved at this event or that event. No, that's when we kind of said, oh, that's what the gospel is. I was saved by Jesus' death in my place. He became my substitutionary sin bearer on the cross. And now I am free, free from sin, free from guilt, free from shame, free from the the prison of, of my sinful nature, free to be the man or the woman that God is recreating me to be because he saved me. And it was his decision to do that. It was his grace to do that. He did it for us. And now we stand safely on the curb realizing, oh my goodness, amazing grace. That he would choose to save us. All right, so we've been talking about he saved us. It was Jesus' choice to do that. Like we weren't really paying attention. We weren't a part of the process. And And if you're tracking with me, maybe you're starting to kind of think through some questions internally, all right? So let me just kind of explore some of the, okay, then what? You know, so what kind of questions as we we kind of get near the end here? You know, this was Jesus' choice to save us. And maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, what about my choice? What part do I play in my salvation, right? Like, if, if it's my choice, think about it. Before we're aware of the Mack truck of cosmic justice coming our way, we think we're okay. Doing pretty good. I'm safe in this crosswalk. No big deal. I just got my, my music playing, my little life soundtrack of how good I am and how well I'm doing. And yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm not, at least I'm not as bad as that guy or that person. You know, I'm, I'm kind of okay. So left to ourselves left to our sinful nature, what choice would we make? Would an enemy choose to be a friend of God? Would a sinner choose to say, I'm sorry to God? Would a rebel choose to submit to the God that he or she's rebelling against. Not in and of himself or herself. Something has to change. Some, some, something inward disposition has to shift. And you know, there's Joseph of Arimathea, there's Nicodemus, 
Also another member of the Sanhedrin who came to Jesus, and Jesus told this very, very religious man, look, you can't even see the kingdom of God, much less enter it unless you're born again, unless the Holy Spirit changes your heart and makes you a new creation. And at that moment, the eyes of your heart can see, the ear, you, you can hear now the music of the gospel and everything that you were formerly listening to telling you how good you are and how fine you are and you know, how you know, none, none of that matters. Then you realize, oh no, it does matter. And the gospel starts to make sense. And that's when we, we tune in and we hear you know, Jesus saying, come and, and, and uh, confess your sins to me. So here, I'm going to just read to you from Titus 3, because I think it gives a better summary here. I don't want to let Scripture speak for itself. Here's how Ty Paul tells Titus how it works. For we ourselves, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That is... 2020. <laughs> this, this, this describes the election. It describes COVID. It describes race and relational tensions. This is like, this is a great summary of where we are as a culture right now, what Paul just described to Titus. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, our self-righteousness, right? But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, by being born again, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So when we think about being saved, I want you to think about Jesus' choice to save us. And then you might go, well, what about everyone else's choice? That's a fair question, absolutely valid question. But I don't think it's as complicated as maybe we think it is, because you, we already believe this. We already believe that it was God's choice to save us. And that's why when we pray for our neighbors and for the nations, it's why when we, we pray for God to open the eyes of, you know, of your unsaved coworker or you know, that uh, student in your class or that uncle or that sibling or whoever, when we pray for those who don't yet know Jesus, we're not praying, God, would you just make it possible for them to, to be saved? That's not how we pray. We pray, God, would you save them? God, would you convert them? God, would you have mercy on them? God, would you renew them, regenerate them, you know, give them a new heart, give them eyes to see. And so we're praying for God to do what only he can do, to save us. So Packer, again, says that those who in their choice, reject the offer of Christ, do so of their own free will, so that their final perishing is their own fault. But those who receive Christ learn to thank him for the cross, 
as the centerpiece of God's plan of sovereign grace, the cross, where he saved us. And if you're tracking still, you're maybe wondering, well, is this fair? Like, shouldn't God save everyone? If he's got that power, why doesn't he save everyone? You know, and, and I, I, it's a great question. And if you're tracking with that, then it proves that you, you get it. You're, you're, you're starting to feel the tension and you're wrestling with this sense of the scandal of grace. But, but I would submit to you that, that fairness is the wrong category to be thinking in. Fairness is for the fairground. You know, where a good parent is going to make sure that all the kids have an equal number of tickets for the rides and for the games because that's fair. We're not really talking about fairness. What we're really talking about is clemency and mercy toward the guilty. So, Look, good news, if, you, if you're asking these questions, you're thinking biblically because this is the very same question that Paul anticipates in Romans where he's laying out this gospel of how God saves sinners. And in chapter nine, he gets to this and he says, well, then what shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part, right? Is this fair? Paul says, by no means, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Well, there may be a couple more questions here. Then does, do I have to do anything? Like if it's, this is all what God's doing, if, if I was saved, if I don't save myself, I'm not contributing, if I'm not playing a part in this, then what do I do? Do I even have to repent and believe anymore? Well, yes, yes. But with the knowledge and the understanding that even our repentance, even our faith is God's gift to us. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 2. Even your faith is a gift that, that God graciously, lavishly gives to us because he loves us. He gets all the glory for saving us. And he opens our hearts, he opens our eyes, he opens our ears to hear the music of the gospel. And so my question is, if you hear the music of the gospel, have you done what he's enabled you to do? Have you repented? Have you believed? Because that is our part to do in this. And if you have that, if, if you're seeing the dots connect and if you believe in Jesus, then that's the evidence that he has given you that new heart. You are born again. And you respond and I respond with faith and repentance. So I know this can be confusing. I, I, maybe some of you are even kind of like chafing a little bit. I just want to reassure you, um, relax. The whole point, the whole point of the gospel is that God saves sinners. And, and we, we know this deep down. We already talked about it. That's why we pray the way we pray. But I don't want you to like, we don't get too upset because we shouldn't flatter ourselves, really, because we, the only thing we add to this, this uh, salvation equation is, well, is the mess that we're in in the first place. That's what we contribute. If, if you want to participate in this plan, then, then we bring our sin. That's our contribution. And God brings the grace. He brings the love. He brings the salvation through, through Jesus. So 
you don't have to get into a tug of war between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. It's, there's a mystery there that can't be explained, but rejoice in sovereign grace. Don't chafe at this. Don't get bowed up about this. Instead, worship the God who saved you. Give thanks to the one who in his mercy loved you and gave himself for you. And then start telling your neighbors and the nations this story of how God saved you through his death on the cross and enjoy all of the beautiful implications and promises that come from this all-powerful design of God to lovingly save you. If that's not true, then what I'm about to read from Romans 8 isn't true. But if it is, then these promises are yours. Let me conclude with Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor COVID, nor elections, nor racism, nor job loss, nor cancer, nor you fill in the blank, right? or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me pray. We thank you for, for grace, Grace that is truly grace. Mercy that is truly mercy. Love that's truly loving because it poured itself out on its enemies, on rebels, on sinners, on us. When we weren't looking for it, when we were unaware, of the judgment heading our way. Jesus, we thank you for standing in our place, for pushing us out of the way, and for taking the truck for sinners. We praise you, we worship you, we want to spend the rest of our lives in eternity, in fact, glorifying your loving, sovereign grace. And help us to do that before one another before our neighbors, 
and before the nations. In your name we pray.